Father, we come to you, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you today together as your family, your children, your people. Lord, as we just sang, beyond our understanding, you are teaching us to trust. Would you do that today? Teach us to trust. And as Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Pray that that would happen through the power of your word and the power of your spirit in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. And have a seat. In Psalm 31, David says, I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hands. Now, I think those words should be comforting and encouraging to us. But are they? Our times are in his hands, which means they are not in our hands. Maybe you feel that you should have more of a say, more control over your life. Like, I should determine how the life and times of Matt Rudd plays out. Or, perhaps you don't really trust God based on your life experiences or whatever reason. We might think that we would feel better if we were holding the building plans for our lives. A while ago, I bought a big Lego Star Wars ship set for me and my boys to build over a holiday. And we've spent hours poring over an instruction manual with about 500 steps in it, taking thousands of pieces that don't appear to make anything coherent at first, and then fitting them together one by one, piece by piece, until our masterpiece was complete. And David Gibson tells of a similar experience with his kids and observes how our lives are like this as a whole. He says, our lives are made up of so many different pieces, people, events, circumstances, times, places, that are all being locked together to make our individual stories. Sometimes we don't see the significance of a tiny piece of the story until later on. Often there seems to be a brick missing, and it's hard to keep going without it. Or there's tremendous joy and satisfaction as a particular piece clicks into place and crowns a part of our life project. The difference between real life and Lego construction, however, is that we are not the ones with the instruction blueprint laid out in front of us. God is. We have individual pieces in our hands, and God has given us enough explanation to set us building, but only he has the master plan. We are building our lives, and we have an idea of how we want to do it and how we hope it will turn out, but there is so much about the shape our lives will take that we cannot control. And in light of this truth, I think the main question becomes, will we trust the Lord? Will we trust the Lord even when we can't see the whole picture? put all the pieces together, or control the outcome? Can we confess that our times are in his hands? And that, we, will we believe that his hands are good? Please take a Bible and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as we continue looking at this ancient book of sometimes perplexing wisdom which surprisingly resonates in so many ways with us in our world today. We've slowly gone through the first two chapters where Solomon declared that life is full of vanity. It's fleeting, frustrating, it's elusive, like smoke or mist or steam. It just slips right through our hands. Then, in describing his life as an epic quest... Solomon offered himself as a, a vivid cautionary tale, you could say, of the vanity 
and wisdom and or sorry, the vanity of wisdom and pleasure and work. All of these things inevitably disappoint us and fall short because we live in a fallen world under the sun, under the curse of sin and death. And yet, even here, God has given us so many blessings for us to enjoy for a time. With this quest concluded, Solomon begins chapter 3 quite differently, bursting into poetry. Look with me. Verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And we'll read the rest of the poem in a moment. But the theme of this passage is clearly time. The word time is actually repeated 29 times in eight verses. Some versions say here, for everything there is an appointed or an opportune or a right time. In other words, everything, good, bad, and in between, happens precisely when it is meant to happen. Even... The format of this passage as poetry reflects some of this reality about time. Since time is structured and ordered and rhythmic and balanced, even beautiful. But what gives time its nature? Well, the creator, establisher, and giver of time, of course which implies what I see as the first major point of Ecclesiastes 3, that God gives us our times. God gives us our times, both ups and downs, and we need to accept it. So accept it. God gives us or appoints us our times, both the ups and downs, and we must accept it. For everything There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, starting with, fittingly, a time for the beginning and a time for the end of our lives, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. So, we we continue as we continue on. We're going to see there's a time for everything else in between our start and our finish. There are many opposites here in this poem, like birth and death, or weeping and laughing, love and hate. But not everything listed here is cut and dried, good or bad. For instance, keeping silence or speaking could be both good and bad, either positive or negative. Thus, this poem also shows us that life is complex, it's multifaceted, it requires wisdom to navigate. But there's a right time for it all. Even in our disordered world, there is order because of God. So, we'll read this together. There is a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now working through this step by step, you first see that there are lifespans and life cycles for human life and for plant life. Right? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. Today, if you're not into farming or gardening, you could say there is a time to start work and a time to finish work. A time to begin projects and a time to complete them. There's also, it says, a time to kill and a time to heal. Now that one may perplex us. 
Obviously, healing is good. But when is there a right time to kill? Let's hold that thought. Come back to this question. It says, also, there's a time to break down, a time to build up, or a time to tear down, a time to construct back up. My family is currently watching this dramatically unfold in our lives right now as the home that we planned on moving into earlier this year ended up being too far gone to live in. So a couple months ago, we watched a backhoe demolish it to the ground. And right now the house is being rebuilt. There's a proper time for both. Verse 4. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It is right and it's good for us to weep and mourn over death and the brokenness of this world. And it's right and good for us to laugh, to cheer, to dance with the joys of life. Hey, don't forget that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, does both for us. Right? It brings us to our knees as we mourn the weight and the wickedness of our sin, and then it lifts us up to experience and celebrate the joy of our salvation. It does both. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Verse 5 says there's a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. That refers to, to clearing a field of stones for agriculture or gathering stones for architecture. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That could be talking about sexual relations or just to affection and friendship, giving hugs. Verse 6, a time to, uh, to seek and a time to lose. In other words, to, to search and find or to quit searching and count our losses, as Solomon actually had just done in our passages. There is a time to keep and a time to cast away. So there's a, there's a time to hold on to something that you own, and there's a time to put it up on Facebook Marketplace or to bring it to a thrift shop. Verse 7 says there's a time to tear and a time to sew. And in those days, people would tear their clothes in grief and then later mend them. There's a time to keep silence, a time to speak, to, to shut up or to speak up. And we all know this all too well, right, by experience. There are times that we should have stayed quiet, but we blurted out something dumb instead. And there are times when we should have spoken up, but we didn't say anything to our shame. There have been times when someone came alongside us in our grief and just sat with us. And their silent presence meant the world to us. And then there are times when an encouraging word came at exactly the right time and just lifted our spirits and kept us going. Time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Now, hate doesn't likely refer to sinful hate here. Remember, there are things that God hates. But sometimes our love or our hate spills over publicly into peace and war, and it ends with a time for war and a time for peace. And we sophisticated, sensible, sanitized Canadians may think, how is there ever a time for war? All right, so let's address this. When are right times to kill or hate or war? Because under Christian ethics, we believe that all human lives are precious, that we should love everyone, even enemies, and that we're called to be peacemakers like Jesus was. Those are all true. But that doesn't mean that, that killing or war are always morally wrong. For example, 
God gives the state the right to bear the sword in order to enact some form of justice here on this earth. Or in the Old Testament, there were wars that God himself deemed as justified or even necessary. Today, good-hearted Christians will disagree on to what extent war is ever justified now. And that's because of a further revelation we have from Christ, like that loving our enemies. But both pacifism and what we call just war theory are legitimate Christian stances to hold, biblically speaking. I'll just add this. In light of the wars raging in our world today, if you have your own kids barbarically killed, then try to tell me that there is never a time for war. Of course, our own sin is going to horribly complicate the matter no matter what. But the fact remains that the God's word says there's a time for war and a time for peace. It's, it's really another painful reminder of how flawed life here is under the sun. How broken it is. And thank God that, that ultimately peace will win out. And that will be the eternal state of our world. Now, I don't believe that Solomon, when he goes through this list, that he's just observing the ups and downs that time brings us and, and shrugging like, well, that's life for you. Life is full of ebbs and flows, so accept your fate. No, I believe that he's implying much, something much more profound, that our lives do not come from fate's hands, but from the Lord's hands, that there is a right time for all these things because they ultimately come from God. The regularities and the rhythms of time are part of the grand tapestry that he is weaving throughout history. And therefore... We don't need to accept whatever season we're in just because some impersonal, inescapable force determined how, when, and where we'll be living. We can accept the season we're in because it comes from an all-powerful, personal, loving God. And he has a plan. He fits all things together. He reigns over the ups and downs of life. We don't have control, but he does. And any time that we are given is a gift. It's a gift of his grace. Knowing this, we then feel a rightful responsibility to use the gift of time wisely or appropriately. In an episode of the Disney Plus series, Forky Asks a Question, the funky little spork from Toy Story asks, what is time? What is time? Another character answers him, now is now, stuff happens, and then it's later. And if you think about it, it can be really challenging to actually define time. Augustine once said, he knows what time is until he is asked to explain it. Karl Barth said that time is the form of our existence. To be man is to live in time. And to, to put it in the style of Ecclesiastes, we experience time as a vanity. Because Time flies by, and it frustrates us with our fallen human limitations. Time wrinkles our faces, wipes our minds, and eventually stops our hearts. We can only truly accept our times when we acknowledge God as our creator and we see that even time itself is something that flows to us from him. 
When we see that, when we see this, instead of time being an enigma or a crushing burden, time then becomes a blessing. Like you can't stop it or control it, but you can receive it and accept it with gratitude as the opportunity, resource, responsibility, and gift that it is. So in Forky asks a question as he goes on. I think he's on to something when he concludes that while the future and the past sound all right, he thinks he likes the now most because he gets to be with his friend now. And if you look at this passage, this poem, almost every item in the list involves some connection with other people. It's very community-oriented. So then we ask, in what ways might we use our time, the gift that God has given us, how would we use our now more responsibly to, to heal, to laugh with, to embrace, to encourage, to make peace, most of all, to love others around you? Jesus certainly set us an example of doing this. Right? Entering our world at the fullness of time, Galatians says, in order to heal us and embrace us and to make peace between us and God. Then he, he waited on the Father's timetable for when his time on earth would be finished. And at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In this, he demonstrated once and for all how great his love is for us. In due time, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, brought his church together. And right before he did that, Christ warned his friends, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But God, God knowing the right time, us not knowing, but God knowing the right time for everything has changed our lives forever. So why would we ever stop trusting him now? And if you haven't yet put your trust in him, maybe today is the day of salvation for you. When you can come to him in this very moment that he's given you right now and receive God's love and his friendship. There's a time to mourn, a time to dance. You can mourn your sin and then laugh and dance when he casts it all away from you. However, as you listen to, to Solomon's, Solomon's poem on time, you may not sense the beauty in it right away. You may more hear an oppressive drum of either repetition or change or both. On the one hand, the same things just keep on happening time and time again, endlessly cycling. On the other hand, no season seems to last forever, even very good ones. Like, there's no permanence here. So, how soon will our times change and we wind up in the opposite season as we are now? David Gibson puts this so well. He says, we long for change in a world of permanent repetition, and we dream of how to interrupt it. We long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change, and we strive to achieve it. And in it all, we are simply trying to make permanent what is not meant to be permanent, that's us, and by constant change, we are trying to control what is not meant to be controlled, as the world. For that matter, we may think, if everything comes from God, not us, do our choices or actions mean anything? We can get pretty deterministic here and despair over the, the tyranny of time, just relentlessly marching on. Just perhaps why Solomon moves on from his poem with the familiar question in verse 9, 
What gain has the worker from his toil? Toil, of course, as you know by now, is, is any human endeavor. In other words, everything that fills our time. So in such a, a timed world, does what we do make any difference? What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, we've heard him say that before, too. However, unlike earlier times, he said similar, Solomon has another surprise for us here. Instead of giving in to depression like he did back in chapter 1, he goes, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Whoa! That's a new tone. Right? Yes, God has given us toil to be busy with in our time. But now we see that even our repetitive, impermanent toil can be made beautiful. And so, not only does God give us our time, but also God gives us our toil and he beautifies it. So enjoy it. God gives us our toil and he beautifies it or redeems it, you could say. So enjoy what he gives you to do. <laughs> he has made everything beautiful in its time. Here, time isn't seen as an oppressive force, but as a redemptive force. Give it time, and God will turn everything ugly and cursed, and broken around for our good and for his glory. Solomon apparently already had seen this take place before, using the past tense here. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that's not delusional, acting like everything broken is already undone or healed. That's trust. That God is already working things out, that he's already fitting them together, and that eventually everything will be made beautiful by our beautiful God. This may be difficult to believe, but it's only like the message of the entire Bible, right? That, that God is taking broken, sinful, ugly things, and healing, cleansing, and beautifying them. It's redemption. Like We should marvel at how breathtaking his completed work is going to be, not resent or dread his power, his sovereign power over us. So we sing in the hymn, Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Derek Kidner explains that our trouble isn't that life is either repetitive or changing, but that we see only a fraction of its movement and its subtle, intricate design. There is a kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece which is the work of one creator. We, don't, we only see a fraction. And Solomon talks about our limited knowledge in the second half of verse 11. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you get what he's saying there? God has put eternity into our hearts. In other words, there's something deep inside of us that longs for timelessness. Something beyond time. We are bound in time. And yet we grope after some reality beyond time. Have you ever wondered why it's so attractive that to waste time or kill time for us? 
Blogger Elisa Riddell claims that wasting time makes us feel immortal. Makes us feel like time doesn't matter. That we bolster a feeling of eternity as we pour time down the drain. God is the one who placed this inherent impulse for eternity in us. And yet, he simultaneously frustrates this impulse, preventing us from understanding it all. Everything has a a right time according to God, but we can't decipher divine timing. Isn't that frustrating? He has placed, also he has placed eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. It's like we've got part of one page of this huge instruction manual. We want access, but we have very limited access to God's big picture. That doesn't seem fair. You might object, and yet it is. God doesn't owe us anything. And if we grasped everything he grasped, it can make us as much of a God as he is. Besides, if he let us in on how billions of lives and countless actions all fit together, being woven into this tapestry, I have a feeling it would make our brains literally explode. (laughs) God's not being unkind by keeping us in the dark. That's just how life is for fallen humanity. We live in a fallen, time-bound world. He lives above it. And this leads Solomon in verse 12 to conclude, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So in addition to accepting our place, we should enjoy our place in life under God. And this is reminiscent of what Solomon said at the end of chapter 2, if you remember, where he said, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. We only have a limited amount of time on this earth, and God wants us to make the most of it. So he suggests here that we be joyful, do good, eat, drink, and take pleasure in our toil. Us enjoying and taking pleasure in these things is a gift from God to us, it says. This is God's gift to man. We can struggle with time because it involves receiving and then losing countless moments that pass us by, right? Time passes by fast. And yet, even loss is an evidence of a gift. We don't resent it. We can't truly appreciate gift without loss. Time is thus a kindness. It's a mercy. So enjoy what we're given. Time is our God-given context to, to do good and to enjoy what we do, to enjoy our toil. So, question for you. Does this we see there in verses 12 and 13, does this describe your life? If so, are you praising the Lord for it? Thanking him for what he's given you to do? And if not, what's got you down? It's, it's normal to get depressed about the vanity of life. But, that should depress us into dependence on the God who wants to fuel our joy. 
in James 1.17, right in the immediate context of trials, tests, and temptation, it says this, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, even in the trials of this broken world, fix your eyes on the many good gifts of God. All that comes from Him. Time is beautiful, and it's a vanity, because we can't grasp it all or control it all. The good news is that there is someone who does understand and who guides all of our times. And when we don't have the whole picture, we ought to look to the one who does. See, God works beyond our time and above our toil, so fear him. God works beyond our time and above our toil, so fear him. This is how Solomon continues. In direct contrast to our toil being trapped in this straitjacket of time, consider God's work in verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So do you see that context there? He talked about our toil for the first few verses, and he goes to God. Our toil is frustratingly fleeting. It seems endless to us, but yet it's over before we know it. Our achievements and accomplishments, the fruits of our labor, never seem to last. We don't have the time or the ability to perfect our work in beauty. But God is not like us. His work lasts forever. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. His work is sufficient. It's, it's complete in and of itself Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. His work is final. God has done it. God has done it. That's that. It's, it's, he's unstoppable. Now, in a book full of elusive vapor, it's hard to overstate this, like how stable and permanent this is trying to say God is. And notice that the purpose behind all God's work, so that people will fear him. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, when you see the word fear there, don't picture cowering in terror before him. Picture worshiping him in joyful reverence and holy awe. Picture us being utterly astounded by what God can do our jaws dropping, our eyes widening, and then our praise exploding. That's the fear of the Lord. But you see, if God is just some weak-willed, unpowerful, selfish, uncaring deity, then our times being in his hands really should worry or distress us. But on the other hand, if God is this God described here, then it should be abundantly comforting. We have nothing to fear if we fear him. He is wise. He's good. He's got the whole picture in his hands. He's the main architect who's building our lives and every other life in history. He's the primary author of the story of our lives, and he knows where the story is going. In Acts 17, Paul preached, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation, having determined their allotted periods, that is, our times on earth, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, our place on earth, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
So he puts eternity in our hearts, but binds us within time in order to drive us to himself. That we would seek him and find him. And this beautiful truth sheds a different light on the familiar words of verse 15. This might sound familiar. It says, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. That's not fatalism. That's contentment under God's sovereignty. And God seeks what has been driven away. What does that mean? Well, the past is lost to us, right? As much as all our time travel movies expose our desire to, we can't change the past. Time gone by has been driven away from us like a leaf blown away by the wind. But it's not lost to God. He will seek after what's passed by, and he'll bring it to account one day. Nothing will be hidden from him, and nothing will be forgotten by him. Speaking of which, we may hear all this about God giving us our time and our toil, and, and him making everything beautiful and working beyond our time and our toil, but we still may feel uneasy because we look around our world and we just don't see it. Right? There is there's so much deep evil and injustice that runs rampant. Well, guess what? Solomon felt this dissonance too. And yet he didn't change his tune here. Why not? Well, it still has to do with time. And God's timing, or his time, not lining up with our time. Solomon wasn't naively ignoring the brokenness in the world. Look with me in verse 18, or 16, sorry. Verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Like he's probably pointing at both the political and religious places of power. Like, look at the, the palaces and the courtrooms. There's wickedness instead of justice. And look at the temple courts. There's wickedness instead of righteousness. Now, we can't relate to that at all today, can we? <laughs> of course we can. There's wickedness. There's corruption everywhere we look. And that's... Really, the, the halls of power being corrupted, that's only the tip of the iceberg in a world that's full of massacres and genocides. So, if we believe that God is giving us our times, what do we do with this fact of how things really are right now? The only thing we can do, have faith that God sees this too. And therefore... This is not how things will always be. Verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Final point for today. God rights all our wrongs in his time. So embrace ours. God will right all our wrongs in his time, and thus we can still embrace our own time. Like in the midst, this is very powerful what Solomon does here, in the midst of the, the wickedness of our fallen world under the sun, Solomon confesses his belief that God will judge everyone one day in equity and righteousness in due season. And the logic is this, that if there is a time for everything, for every matter, for every work, then there is certainly a time for justice and righteousness to prevail. If, also, if none of our work lasts forever, then neither can injustice last forever. Put another way, 
the times of our lives are not the only times there are. Praise the Lord for that. That there will be a time when the wicked's time runs out and they have to come before the Lord. Like, do you see how, how God's judgment should actually be comforting to us in our world today? There is a time to be born, a time to die, and there is a time for judgment. And believe it or not, that's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing, as judgment will solve the problems of injustice, evil, pain, and suffering that plague us today. Also, since the righteous will be judged too, it means that our present actions do have meaning and purpose, that they're going to impact eternity too. Like This is the ultimate good news for those with faith. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. But this will only happen in God's timing, not what we wish his timing would be. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Just as God has sent Jesus to earth to bear God's justice, but in his timing, the Father will send Jesus back to earth one day to enact his justice, but in his timing. No one knows the day or the hour this will happen, but it will yet happen. In righteousness, Jesus will judge and make war. And justice will be done once and for all. The curse will be removed. The creation will be renewed. Every sinful way that we've tarnished his beautiful creation will be undone. We don't know all the details of how or when this is going to be, but God's word assures us of this, so we take it on faith. We can't have it both ways, though. We can't beg God to right the wrongs of this world and then when he does, tell him, how dare you? Or, why didn't you do it sooner? He's the only one with the whole picture, the whole blueprint, and his timing will be the best timing, period. We wonder, like, why not now? Why isn't today? The right time for total justice. And it may be. We can pray for that. But we wonder, why not now? Verse 18 hints at an answer. It says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Derek Kidner explains that our first need is not to teach God his business, but to learn the truth about ourselves, a lesson we are very slow to accept. Now, of course, we know that humans are more than mere beasts. We carry the image of God, after all. Solomon's point here is to emphasize that we are creatures, not the creator. And in physical death, we might as well be, we are equal to animals in that. It says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. We acted as if we could be gods, and thus we die like beasts. Dust to dust. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Well, God knows. And we actually know more than Solomon knew. Though even now, so much of the afterlife remains a mystery to us. But death reveals the flimsiness of our lives. It's the, the gust of wind that topples our decaying trees. Verse 22 says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. In other words, we need to learn to embrace our place, to embrace our times, 
It's not our fate. It's our lot given to us by our good and gracious God. Time's a precious gift that we only have for a time. So so more than, than feeling guilty over how we've used our time so far, we should feel blessed for the time we still have and challenged to use it wisely. Part of which includes rejoicing in or enjoying whatever God gives us due to in life, in whatever season we're in, whether it's school or a job or housework or childcare or play or eating or resting in the right ways. We should enjoy it. I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? That last line simply means. We don't know what the future holds. So, like the saying goes, it's a really good thing we know who holds the future. And in the end, we must return to the critical question. Will we trust him? Will we trust him with our todays and tomorrows? As Keith Green once sang, it's dust to dust, until we learn how to trust. May our joys, our sorrows, everything in between, our toil in our days compel us to trust in him. We don't know exactly where everything goes in what order or why, but he does. And I believe, I hope you do too, that he will make everything beautiful in his time. Remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo is lamenting how much evil is coming to a head in his days? And he tells Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Gandalf replied, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Everyone wishes our times would be full of peace and joy and love. But they often aren't under the sun. And Ecclesiastes tells us likewise, that's not for us to decide. Yet time is still given to every one of us. So what will we do with the time that is given to us? Now, please stir our hearts up to, to live for you in our times, to follow you with all our hearts, to come before you and fear you, and to show the world who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.